In this episode of Flying Smarter, I start by talking about why you can't board a plane after a gate closes even if the plane is still sitting there. Then, I chat with Michael Hilliard, a conflict journalist who has traveled to many unconventional destinations around the world, giving him unique experiences and insights on air travel. Welcome to episode 22 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. Let's get started. Why can't I board a flight after the gate has been closed, even if the aircraft is still sitting there? You've probably either personally had an experience or have heard of an experience where you're cutting it close and you rush to the gate to board a flight. You see that the plane is still sitting at the gate, but you're told that you can't get on board because the gate has been closed. Of course, this can be incredibly frustrating, but I'm going to try to explain what's going on. The reason that gate agents won't let you on board has nothing to do with a physical inability to open a door. Instead, it's a complex matter of logistics, airline operations, and safety. There's a point when the gate is closed, and the flight is considered closed out in an airline system. This means that the weight and balance has been finalized and reviewed by a dispatcher from the airline, and the list of passengers, also known as a passenger manifest, has been finalized and printed. Depending on the airline, aircraft, and airport, it could also mean that the airline's dispatch has given the flight clearance to depart, information has been entered into the aircraft's computer, baggage loading has been finalized, and a whole host of other compliance or procedural things have been finalized and checked. Depending on when you arrive at the gate, the plane might also actually be ready to go. The jet bridge could be detached, pilots could have started their checklists, and the plane could be about to push back. In any case, reopening the flight to allow additional passengers to board would require a lot of procedures to be redone and would hold up the entire plane and all its passengers. At busy airports, flights may also have what's called the departure slot, or a time period in which they're scheduled to take off, and missing this slot can lead to a significant wait. Not only would holding up the plane for everyone or missing a departure slot lead to costly delays for the airline, but it could also cause other passengers to miss connections down the line. That's not to say that it's strictly impossible for a flight to be reopened after the gate has been closed, and it does happen from time to time, but it's generally not worth it overall. The few minutes that it would take to physically open a door and let someone on the plane would lead to a delay significantly longer than that because of the procedures discussed earlier. And of course, delays have a cascading effect leading to potential delays for the plane, crew, and other passengers later in the day. The other thing is, the line kind of has to be drawn at some point, and having a strict cutoff where the gate is closed and nobody else is allowed on board keeps things consistent and can prevent disputes. Did you know that some aircraft have service elevators in their cabins? Although most planes today have a single passenger deck, the Airbus A380 and the Boeing 747 have two passenger decks. Both of these types of planes have elevators in their cabins, with the Airbus A380 having two and the Boeing 747 having one. These elevators are not meant for people, 
but rather for moving catering trolleys and other food supplies between the two passenger decks. Lufthansa's Airbus A340-600s also have a galley below the passenger deck in the cargo hold level, which also has a service elevator. Michael Hilliard is a journalist who's reported from conflict zones across the planet. His work has taken him to places from Iran to Kyrgyzstan to Belarus and Russia, and he's worked with governments, think tanks, and other organizations across the globe. He therefore has extensive travel and air travel experience, having visited many less traveled destinations and having taken lots of unconventional trips. He hosts The Red Line, a podcast that is now Australia's most streamed geopolitics program. I'm so happy to have Michael on the show with me today. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Absolute pleasure to be here. So I want to get started by getting to know you a little bit better. Could you tell us a bit more about what it means to be a conflict journalist? So a conflict journalist is pretty much just the, the sucker who will go to the war zones and actually do some of the field reporting. Uh, so, you know, guys in boardrooms can keep themselves nice and nice and clean and pristine. Uh, People always think of it as this kind of career that you uh, you sit in a trench and you're getting fired at all day, which, you know, there is a bit of that, which is lovely. Uh, but a majority of it is literally just being um, kind of in the zone, talking to locals, talking to officials, kind of getting an idea of what's going on. You know, it's good field reporting. So a really classic example I kind of uh, I'll point, I can point towards is, you know, if you ask a general where, you know, where his troops are going next month, uh, he'll go, sorry, that's classified, can't tell the app. But if you go... You know, have drinks with his secretary and, and have a few drinks and then you end up asking where the mail's going and she says oh yeah we're forwarding all the mail to this city now you know that's you can go and go okay cool i have a general idea on obviously there's something going on towards that city and then you can start to piece people uh, things together from there um so yeah it's, it's a you spend a lot of time in bars you spend a lot of time in terrible hotels you spend a lot of time in airports that uh you know are always <laughs> pretty fun to get through uh, and yeah, generally it, it's just a it's a very very different experience to your, your conventional airports that have dealt with a lot of people. You start getting into places where, you know, they've never they've never met in Australia before. You know, it's an it's an interesting career in airports, particularly as a yeah a bit of a you know <laughs> soft spot for me, um, but always always a bit of a challenge. No, and that's really interesting. On that note, I guess, what is your approach to travel when you have to go to these places to to do your work? So it really depends where you're going. You know, if you are, you know, quite often you, let's say you're going to like, you know, like the Ukrainian front lines, you might go, you know, you'll fly into like Warsaw and then you can base yourself out of a city, which is fairly safe, you know, Lviv or, uh, you know, Kiev or one of these cities is really safe and then take day trips out to where you need to go uh, because then you don't need to take all your stuff with you. You know, the particularly laptops, really important stuff, you know, you don't want to be carting around a big old backpack with you. Other cities, you know, you're flying in with all your stuff uh, and, you know, you've got to be careful of what's on there. You know, you've got to effectively wipe lots of data off things and hard drives before you cross over the border because, you know, there's a good chance that you might have it confiscated. Um, you know, it really is, you know, crossing a land border is completely different to crossing air borders. So, you know, crossing a land border, you're more likely to get, you know, someone who's willing to take a bribe or someone who's willing to look the other way on things. Um, but you're also more likely to be harassed and have trouble getting across a land border. Whereas, you know, airport borders are really professional, but then, you know, you get questions of, you know, what countries you've been in the last 10 years. And then once you get that question, you know, for someone like me who's been to a lot of odd countries, 
uh, that just makes it a whole exercise. Um, so either you've got a visa beforehand uh, or yeah, you're in for, a, in for a pretty rough time at most airports. So yeah, every land border has a different way of doing things. Every country has a different way of doing things. Uh, I travel two passports um, and it really depends on which one they like more in the day. Uh, but yeah, it is like no country, no airport. You know, you, there's some things you can learn about all of them, but they're all different in some odd way. It's interesting that you mentioned that uh, airports are generally more professional. And I think that for most of us, all the airports we'll travel to in in our lifetime are at least to, to one extent or another quite mm. uh, quite quite modern or have at least uh, to built to the same standards or have the s- similar procedures and things like that. Um, in your experience with some of the less well-traveled mm. areas, I would say, is that still the case when you go to different airports or are there some airports where it's a whole different world from what we would normally see for your average traveler? So some airports are, you know, if, like, you know, really just like not, there's nothing there, you know, particularly uh, a very, very long time ago, you know, uh, when I was much younger and, and uh, I, I used to travel in bands and do touring as well. And, you know, we go play country towns and all mine sites and stuff and you'd fly to this airport and it's just a sea container in a, you know, a desert that is flat, not even a, a, a hill or a tree as far as the eye can see. Uh, it's just a, it's just literally a sea container and that's it. Uh, and it's always weird to kind of think of that as the airport terminal. Uh, it's also very funny when the the plane kind of lands there and you still have the staff, you know, by law who are forced to direct you towards the plane. You're like, oh, you mean the plane other than the only thing that stands above the ground for, you know, the entire breadth of the horizon. Yeah, yeah, okay, I know where the plane is. Um, you know, other airports, you know, where you have guys like, uh, you know, Murmansk Airport up in, up in the Arctic where, you know, if you, you know, have trouble with your phone or something, they pretty much, if you fl- take them, the, you know, the last flight out from Moscow, as you go through the sort of the checking gates, they close everything behind you. Uh, and then, you know, when we got there, uh, they closed the airport behind us and our phone didn't work for some reason and our credit card was, wasn't working. It was a bit of a pain. And it's like, okay, we're now stuck in this airport and they've shut the airport behind us. There's no lights. It's negative 25 it's the middle of the night, you know, and we are probably 60, 70 kilometers uh, from, from the city. Uh, you know, those are always fun airports as well. Uh, other times you get airports like Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan, which is, you know, it's not a bad airport. Uh, the customs officers are pretty chuffed to see you when you come through. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like freezing inside and they will immediately harass you for, you know, get in my cab, get in, you know, do this, do that from like the moment you get off the plane, uh, which is always fun. But yeah, it's usually your capital airports are somewhat useful. There's some signs in English, uh, but yeah, definitely the the rural airports is where you're, you're, you're taking your life in your hands in some of these airports. On that note, we know that even with quote unquote scary moments like bad weather or turbulence, mm. air travel is still very safe. Yeah. But I, I wonder for someone with uh, very unique travel experiences like yourself, have you ever actually felt unsafe while you were flying or while you were at an airport? Uh, I remember coming into Mongolia years ago and it was just huge crosswinds. They'd canceled all the flights apart from ours. And I don't know why they didn't cancel ours. Uh, and we pretty much came in sideways and you could almost feel the, the, uh, you know, the, the wheel bend as it hit the, as it hit the deck. Yeah. But there's all, every, you know, every, uh, every flight's always going to be better or worse. And there's some great flights, there's some terrible flights. Uh, I mean, the flights I, I really, really, I mean, turbulence, fine. 
hit the deck hard, fine. You know, flying over a war zone, whatever, it's fine. I have traveler's insurance. It's the, you know, ones where you do, you know, particularly as I, I'm usually based out of Australia. So I'll fly very long distances to start most work trips. You know, when you get stuck in the middle of some family who allows their kids to run up and down the hallway, you know, just wearing a diaper or, <laughs> you know, I remember one flight where some lady tried to change her kid's diaper on the tray table next to me. Oh, no. Uh, she didn't want to break her, uh, you know, break the poker game she was playing on the back of the seat. Other ones where I remember, uh, you know, me and a good buddy of mine were flying from Kazakhstan into India. Um, and we were, pro- you know, the only, th- you know, uh, three sort of white people on the plane were myself, uh, the my buddy and, and the hostess. Uh, and obviously these Indian guys were probably just here for work. They didn't really know how everything works. Uh, and the plane went, yep, we're descending into New Delhi. Uh, and they all stood up to, you know, stand at the door like a train, uh, to which it was just an absolute chaotic mess of, uh, trying to find someone there who spoke English. So the hostess could speak to me in Russian and I could translate to English. The English guy and the guy who spoke English could translate in, into Hindi and everything else to everyone else. Now, on the note of knowing what to expect, when we travel by air, I feel like we generally have an expectation of what's going to happen at an airport with check-in, security, mm-hmm. customs, and immigration if needed, uh, etc. Now, for, for all the places that you've been to, do you find that it's still consistent, even in some of the less developed or more politically unstable areas, or are there totally different experiences out there? Oh, it is completely one way or the other. So, like classic example, when the first time I went to Kazakhstan, you know, uh, you know, I was the only one out of my party who spoke Russian. And I was like, look, I'll go first. That way, if we run into any problems, I can kind of translate. And they pulled my buddy up first. And I was like, okay, he doesn't speak a word of Russian. And they looked through his passport and they went, uh, visa, you know, just where's your visa? And he just looked at them and went, uh, don't need. And they went, eh, probably. <laughs> and let us through. No, no, no questions asked, no book looking, you know, just a, eh, whatever, you know, I don't really mind. Um, Whereas when you go to someone like Xinjiang, which is where the Uyghur population is in China, you know, just to get from the gate to, you know, the, the where you get the taxis, I was searched eight times. Um, you know, they just went ballistic on my stuff all the time, like pulling apart my electric shavers and, you know, really giving me the business. So it really just depends. Some airports are really, really lax and they don't care. Other airports are... Um, you know, uh, really, really, really strict. You know, they'll do fingerprint scans. They'll do personal questioning. You know, it's always fun when the guy with the rubber glove comes up and you're like, oh my God, okay, here we go. Um, you know, and particularly in Central Asia where they don't, you know, I mean, if the guys coming through, you know, Charles de Gaulle in Paris have seen every nationality every single day. Not you, There's nothing they haven't seen. Whereas the guys in, you know, in Turkmenistan or Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan, you know, really haven't, you know, seen that many people come through from different nationalities. And I remember talking to another journalist uh, who, you know, is pretty famous now, but he he came through an airport in, I think it was Nur Sultan or it was Almaty, one of the two in Kazakhstan. Um, and he showed off his New Zealand passport and they went, oh, you know, what is this? And when New Zealand, you know, it's a country, what's going on? They went, oh, I, I've never heard of it. I don't think it's a country. And he goes, it, it's definitely a country. I, I assure you it's a country. He goes, okay, well, come to, come to my office. And we'll uh, point it out on the map. And unfortunately, it was a map that didn't have New Zealand on it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, so the poor bugger had to, they ended up calling the New Zealand embassy in Moscow and being, and they'd be like, hi, New, Ze- you know, hi, New Zealand embassy, Moscow. And, you know, the, you know are you a country? He's like, yeah, we're definitely a country. Like, oh, sweet. Okay. Well, come on through, I guess. Um, 
you know, airports without power are always fun as well because everything has to be done by hand and it's dark and there's just guys with, you know, phone flashlights trying to get you through it. Um, but yeah, generally every airport's pretty much the same. And I think, you know, it is a testament to English as well that you have even in the back bits of Iran or the back bits of Russia, all the signs in secondary are all English, which is pretty crazy to me that, you know, these countries that really, really don't like, you know, uh, the government's maybe really anti-America or anti-English speaking, you know, we'll still have all the airport signs in English as well because they know, you know, there's going to be dumb travelers, but they'll have some money with them. That's actually amazing. And I know on on the safety side, at least for for aviation, you know, in, in English is the, the, the universal language, but there's a good reason for that, right? I didn't realize that on the more perhaps in your in when you're saying the customer service side that they still um, push English like that and uh, like you said it really is a testament to to the world and some of the some of these countries uh, who perhaps uh, don't see a lot of uh, English speaking folks or aren't a huge fan uh, like you said right mm. so I want to pick your brain now for a little bit of travel advice if that's okay if mm-hmm. you're looking to travel to somewhere like a remote part of Central Asia or book a flight to a politically unstable region, how does one even go about planning and booking a trip like that? So there are a few things you can do. First of all, make sure you know, like you do a bit of research beforehand, know the basic customs, you know, don't walk into, you know, Kazakhstan, you know, with a giant Russian flag draped around you. <laughs> um, yeah, do... You know, learning the really, really basics, you know, your thank yous, how much yes, no is a really, really good thing to do. Uh, and it shows that, you know, you made some sort of effort. Uh, if you need a visa, I highly recommend getting visas done beforehand because otherwise, you know, in the embassy, they can't, it's very hard for them to take bribes and because, you know, it's, it's much more regulated. But on the ground, when you're sitting at a border checkpoint, uh yeah like that's where you're pretty unregulated and particularly if it's like a rural crossing yeah that's when you can fall into troubles so um knowing a local and getting a local fixer is always useful you know if you if you've you know we live in the world of the internet where you can just like message people on the ground and, and they'll sort out someone who can kind of like be there with you and talk you through it um but generally you know high traffic border zones are really good you know if you go travel down the road where they have they see one you know, uh, one car every eight hours, then you're definitely going to get more scrutiny because he's, he's bored. He's got nothing better to do. Whereas if you, you know, if I'm trying to get across a border quietly, quite often, you know, you'll do it in, uh, you know, communal buses like Mashrukas or, uh, you know, effectively just what the locals do because they're just, there's just so much traffic. They really just want to keep things moving. Uh, so they'll, they'll look at your passport. They'll quickly go, yeah, it's fine. You know, and they'll, and they'll just try and shove you through. Uh, but yeah. Again, most border guards are really reasonable. You know, you know, if you're not causing them trouble, if you, you know, if you look like you're supposed to be there, and I think that's one of the big things that people, you know, they get all freaked out and they start jittering and they start asking too many questions. You know, um, you know, that's when you get pulled up for, for security questioning. If you look like you are grumpy, hungover, and just want to get through this because you do this eight times a week, that's when they go, yeah, this guy's doing. The, he looks like he does this all the time. Go on through. Uh, and those are the easiest border trek points you're going to see. And what would you say about uh, when it comes to booking a flight? So let's say, you know, I'm going to say that most people know what their options are if they're booking a flight to Paris or to, to Singapore or whatnot. But when if I'm trying to book a flight to a war zone or, quite frankly, the middle of nowhere, is it the same or what are my options? So most of the time you won't want to fly into, you know, so let's say Ukraine is a classic example right now. You know, if you want to book a flight, into Ukraine, I would highly recommend not flying to Kiev or Lviv. You know, you want to probably just fly to Warsaw, which is like, 
you know it's easy, you know it's guaranteed, you know that it's perfectly fine, and then make your way in from there. You know, and most war zones are not in the capitals. So even if you fly to the capital, you can kind of get yourself set up and then head into the war zone. And it's always better to do that. You know, there is nothing worse than, you know, if you've flown 22 hours to get to some godforsaken place and you get right into a terrible situation, there is something nice about it. Like, okay, I'm here. I'm going to sleep in an actual bed for 12 hours. I'm going to have a nice hot meal. I'm going to get myself, you know, the lay of land. I'm going to you know, brush up my Russian so it's back to, back to normal. Uh, before I head into wherever I need to head into, um, you know, it's kind of picking yourself up after that, you know, some of these pretty long flights, but yeah, it's again, there's not too much difference. You know, you book the same, use the same kind of, uh, uh, websites and whatnot that everyone else does for their usual flights. Just kind of double check with your, uh, even if I buy on something like a Skyscanner, I'll still go to the local website and like double check all the booking can, uh, numbers will match up. Um, because sometimes that doesn't, but generally, yeah, like if you can't get on a flight, you know, that sucks, but there's usually another flight out, you know, not too far afterwards, particularly in that area of the world. Now you mentioned earlier that you've had the chance to fly on a lot of small planes, and I'm sure you've also flown on some airlines that I or many other people have never heard of. What advice Mm. would you have for people who are nervous about flying, whether it's on a small plane or perhaps a small airline or into a part of the world that doesn't get a lot of flights? So statistically, airlines are so much safer than any other form of transport. You know, even you know, even you know, planes crashing in in the back bits of you know Kazakhstan or Mongolia are really, really rare. Like you'd have to be incredibly unlucky uh, to hit anything. So you know, I, the statistics get gets kind of me through it. Going, yeah, like I have more chance of of you know uh, getting you know. A coconut falling on my head than dying in a plane crash it's just because you know obviously they get more headlines when they do um generally planes are also you know have to be kept to a certain international maintenance standard so even if it's a really dodgy country you know the airline fleet if they are flying into major cities which is that's where the money is you know your commuters from you know istanbul in or from uh, moscow in you're going to they're going to have to sit to some standards so you're pretty safe you know, if you're going into some, like this becomes, you know, avoid that rule if it's, you know, Democratic Republic of Congo or places like that where you're flying old, unpressurized, you know, <laughs> like DC-9s um, where the pilot is just as drunk as you are. Uh, that, you know, yeah, that that's problematic. Like that at that point, fair call, uh, you should be worried. <laughs> but at that point, there's not much you could do about it anyway. Michael Hilliard is a conflict journalist with extensive air travel experience around the world. He's traveled to many uncommon destinations that are hard to access, having reported from places like Iran, Belarus, and Russia. He's the founder and the host of The Red Line, a geopolitics podcast that brings together three guests to tell a key story each episode. It's a fascinating show with meticulous analysis that I myself actually really enjoy listening to. You can learn more about The Red Line at theredlinepodcast.com and you can find The Red Line on social media as well and we'll have links to those in the description. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come and be here, Michael, and chatting with me. I really appreciate you coming to share your experiences and insights. 
Uh, absolute pleasure being here. You know, it's it's a very niche world. It's a very niche audience where I get to chat about airports and, uh, you know, customs check-ins with someone. And I think you are probably the only other person who has the same amount of interest in, in customs checkouts as I do. So it's uh, if I'm not talking to you about this, my fiance is going to hear about it another 800 times when I uh, talk about Beijing airport. So uh, I'm very happy you came on. You've said my fiance hearing another speech with me complaining about Beijing airport. <laughs> That's amazing. Thanks so much, Michael. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Please take a minute and follow us on social media where you'll find things like podcast updates and sneak peeks. Flying Smarter is on Facebook and Instagram at Flying Smarter and on Twitter at Flying underscore Smarter. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. Thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you again soon.